Well, hear now these words from the prophet Isaiah. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They want God on their side. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress your, all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as Tony mentioned last week during the season of Lent, we are doing a sermon series on acceptable practices. And so to launch the series, last week uh, the sermon was an acceptable time. This week it's an acceptable fast. Next week it's an acceptable sacrifice and so on until we get to Holy Week in April. Now the genesis of this, story, uh, this series came from our own Chris Holmes, who presented it to the staff a few weeks ago. And frankly, I am grateful that Chris did this because sometimes the hardest part of, of writing a sermon is coming up with a catchy title. And when you do a series, sometimes it's hard to sort of figure out how they all fit together. So he sort of did the, the, the layman's work for us. And uh, anyway, he, he gave us this thing a few weeks ago, but somehow in the transmission of his idea to the rest of the staff, Something curious happened, it's something that's the bane of writers and copy editors everywhere, a typo. Even worse, the kind of typo that is a correct word, but it's in the wrong context, so you don't get the squiggly little red thing under in Word to let you know that there's an error there. 
And uh, that's exactly what happens a few iterations of this sermon before today. Somewhere the letter E crept into the word fast and turned it into the word feast. And so for a few days, I'm walking around imagining what I'm going to say about what an acceptable feast is going to be. And the good news is Chris caught it long before I sat down to write anything on feasting, so I didn't waste much time. And had I gotten so far as to crack open my Bible and to see what Isaiah was saying here, I would have realized very quickly uh, that the title was wrong. But it did make me think, isn't it a weird quirk that one errant letter can basically turn the word fast into its antonym? Okay, there's only going to be like three, maybe four people in the church that care about this beside me and the origins of words, but I looked it up, and if you're a word nerd like me, this one's for you. Um, even though fast and feast are very close in the spelling in modern English and can, both can have religious connotations, their roots are from very different places. Fast comes to us from Old English, from the proto-Germanic fastanon, which means to hold or to guard. I think the idea is that you have to guard yourself or have exercised some fortitude to not eat, to maintain that discipline when you've got food readily available. Feast, however, comes from the Latin festa, a festival, which is related to the word phanum, which is the Latin word for temple, you know, the places of worship where festivals and feasts took place. But the more I thought about it, feast and fast aren't really perfect antonyms, are they? I, we have a, a, a turn of phrase in English that I think illustrates this perfectly. A situation like where you have a bunch of something and then nothing. And so we don't say feast or fast. We say feast or famine. Exactly, right. Famine is the opposite of feast. Not fast, but they certainly are similar. Both mean to go without food. But there's one critical difference in their meaning. And that's intentionality. See, a famine happens to you, whereas a fast is something you choose to do. Famines are a crisis brought on by drought, a plague of insects, disease crops, or even an enemy destroying food stocks. And that creates a lack of sustenance that could well lead to widespread suffering and perhaps even starvation. A fast, however, is a conscious decision to forego nourishment. It's a spiritual discipline that's intended to draw one closer to God. And this can only happen, only happen, if you have some sort of assurance that when you decide to break that fast, you will actually have something to eat. To put it another way, a famine is inherently about uncertainty, whereas a fast is about certainty. And that certainty comes from a profound development in the human condition, a shift in the way ancient people lived, the creation of what we call society or civilization. Here's a curious thing. When I was researching this sermon, I discovered that every civilization for which we can read their holy texts mentioned fasting as a spiritual practice. And so it predates the Hebrews by quite a bit. You know, fasting is just a simple way, physical way, to set aside our persistent desire to eat and to focus on the spiritual realm, to set aside the bodily and to focus on the transcendent. Fasting is not a diet. For a component of religious fasting is prayer and contemplation. And honestly, when I diet, there's more cursing than praying. That's just me. But kidding aside, we, fasting can be symbolic of our hunger and our thirst for God. 
But again, it's something that's done in civilization. It's highly unlikely that a primitive hunter-gatherer would have a gazelle in sight of his spear or arrow and would say, no, today I'm not going to kill and eat that. I'm fasting. No. Now, the reality is they were too on the margin. They knew famine. They ate when they could because there was no guarantee for tomorrow or next week. And the irony of that ancient reality means that those who could most efficiently store today's meal in their subcutaneous fat were better to weather the famines when they did come. And those individuals passed their genes on to their children and their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, all the way down to me, so that this is one of the reasons I have been struggling to lose and then refine the same 20 pounds ever since college. We're all descended from humans who knew deprivation but survived. But we're also all descended from humans who figured out how to break that cycle of life in the natural world that Thomas Hobbes once described as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. There's a story that the famed anthropologist Margaret Mead was once asked by one of her students what she saw as the first sign of civilization. And the student expected her to say something like, you know, shards of pottery or stick that had been fashioned into some sort of crude plow or maybe even cave paintings. But what she said surprised him. She recounted being on an archaeological dig and the team finding a human femur, a femur that had been broken, but they could tell had grown back together. She explained to the class that it takes roughly six weeks for a human bone to mend, but that until that bone healed, that person was basically helpless. They couldn't forage for food. They couldn't move towards water. They were a sitting duck to wild animals. Any animal that breaks a bone like that, she said, becomes part of the food chain within days, if not hours. But the mended bone was proof that someone took the time to look after that wounded person, to bind their leg, to carry them, perhaps. They protected them, fed them, nursed them back to health. Mead said, helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts. And then she told the class that they radiocarbon dated the bone was 13,000 years old. So humans have been on this path of compassion and service for quite some time. But I think the Calvinists in the room, like me, would say we sometimes go astray. And what I'm going to say next is something some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going to disagree with me. But I read the book of Genesis metaphorically, not literally. So I don't find any contradiction between how Holy Scripture explains theologically, the how and why humans were expelled from Eden, and the fossil record and the science of anthropology that tells us that roughly 10 to 12,000 years ago, Homo sapiens made the leap from hunting and gathering to farming. Our species moved in a very different and inexorable direction when our ancestors figured out how to domesticate certain animals and how to cultivate certain types of plants. And these developments happened over a long time and in many different places, but the developments as they were shared with other humans compounded the resources available to ancient humans. And having these extra uh, sur surplus foods, well, the first problem was you needed to store it. First, maybe in baskets and then maybe in clay jars. Plus, if you're growing crops, you need to kind of wait around for them to, to ripen. And so the need to build things to hold the food and to protect yourself arose. Um, this was the first architecture. Uh, these 
early humans figured out how to redirect water to irrigate plants. They built corrals to keep and protect the animals they domesticated. They eventually built walls to protect themselves, maybe from other humans or from wild animals. Um, they took turns taking watch at night. But, and the surplus of calories meant that there was an explosion in the population, and that meant you could start to divide the labor. And this led to efficiencies of production, and that meant that you needed to manage it. So there were certain people who figured out, oh, we can take a clay tablet and make little marks on it to say how much grain we have and whose turn it is to watch on the wall. This is the, the first writing. As civilization becomes more and more complex and neighbors become anonymous, there arose the impulse to game the system. Here's where the astray part happened. You know, why work the fields when you can get someone else to do it? Why man the wall when you can get someone else to do it for you? This certainly happened to civilizations that sprung up in the Levant and in Egypt. The administrative class morphed into a priestly class and rulers arose who claimed they were gods. Humans exploited one another. They enslaved one another. They went to war against one another. There's a story that's at the heart of our scripture that this form of ordering was not God's will and that God intervened to set this world on a different path. If you grew up going to Sunday school like I did, you know the story of how God approached a man, his name was Abram, a man who lived in what archaeologists now tell us was a very complex and probably cosmopolitan city, Ur, in the uh, Sumerian Empire, an empire that existed four to 5,000 years ago in what's now modern-day Iraq. But God approached this man and made a covenant with him that he was to go and start a new people, a great people, to start this in a land of promise. Now, our lesson this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah at a point roughly 1,500 years from that first covenant. And we know theologically that God always kept the covenant, but that the story of God's people is that the people failed to keep those covenants. They failed to keep their end of the bargain repeatedly. And not to get into specific details of specific instances of failure to obey God's will, but I think you can boil down the chosen people's inability to keep God's covenants as repeated desires to be like the other nations. You see, they did things like borrowing false idols and worshiping. They made treaties and compacts with foreign powers that weren't aligned with God's plans. And perhaps the most distressing was the fact that the people who came into power and who had influence treated the people in their midst, both foreigners and their own kin, as a means to an end. That is, they exploited them for personal gain. And it was this reason, the prophets explained, for generation after generation is why God allowed foreign powers to dominate and to conquer them. Now, on the timeline that corresponds with our reading this morning, the latest iteration in that cycle was what we call the exile, when the people of Judah disobeyed God and they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. They knocked down the city of Jerusalem, they tore down the temple, and they took the elite from Jerusalem into bondage and hauled them off to Babylon where they were subjugated for 40 years. But here, with the prophet Isaiah, we have a new hope. 
because the Babylonians were defeated by yet a different empire, this time the Persians, and their king, Cyrus, unbeknownst to him, unwittingly carried out God's will by ordering the Jewish people back to their homeland. And once there, they are given the opportunity to resettle the land, and it's really sort of a, a pinnacle of their history, a high watermark, if you will. They've now got the opportunity to get a fresh start. They can rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, we actually call this time the second temple period or the second temple era. They just have to take advantage of it. You see, the temple is to be the place where the heart of their religion takes place, where the people commune with God. And so they will have feasts there, but also this is where they'll come to fast. But Isaiah is warning them in our lesson this morning that it's not strict religious adherence like fasting that's acceptable in God's sight. It's justice. It's equity for all. I'll read again just a portion of the prophecy. Is this, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin? Did they listen? Did they obey? Well, for those who know the rest of the story, the answer is sadly no. So they fell back into old patterns. You can fast forward 500 years, still in the Second Temple era. But there we have evidence of another prophetic voice telling the people how they've fallen short. And of course, this time the voice is that of Jesus. By this time, yet another empire has conquered God's people with their own version of civilization, the Romans. There are certain swaths within the Jewish population who went along with the Roman hegemony for they were doing just fine, thank you very much. But if you step back and look at what Rome was, you'll also see that it was incompatible with God's will. What with their veneration of militarism, the subjugation of every culture they met, Gladiatorial combat is entertainment, an economy based on slave labor, so on and so on. I mean, you could make the argument that the Romans were something of a death cult. But into this world comes Jesus. And his most famous exhortation against the current world order was, I'd argue, the Sermon on the Mount. And we rarely read the entire Sermon on the Mount in worship. It's, it covers three whole chapters in Matthew, so it's a bit much for your scripture reading. Um, but we do have familiar verses that we read fairly often, the ones that stand out as a stark counterpoint to the world order that Jesus lives in, where he says things like, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But within this same sermon are warnings, just a few verses later, warnings to those who are religious but are also complicit with the status quo. Jesus calls them hypocrites. And since we're talking about fasting, I'll just share a couple of verses from the Sermon on the Mount. And just know, in a few weeks, we'll go deeper uh, into this section in a different sermon. These are the words of Jesus. Whenever you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites, for they mark their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face 
so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, Jesus has come to upend the world order that was counter to God's will to point out those injustices and the hypocrisies that God's people had become blind to, were living with, and got to this point where they believed that so long as they adhered to the right temple practices, including public fasting, well, they thought they were all right in God's sight. Well, the Romans and the religious authorities did not appreciate this counter-narrative, and we know what they did to Jesus, arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. Also, those who know the history, this potential high watermark of the Jewish people of Second the Temple Judaism, it also came to an end. It was just about 40 years after uh, they thought they'd dispatched Jesus, they went ahead and destroyed Jerusalem yet again and tore down the temple as well. But the cross and the tomb weren't the end of the story. Jesus' message and call to minister to the outcast, to the oppressed, to the downtrodden, to the hungry, to seek justice and all the things that the people who believed in Easter occurred, all that outlived Second Temple Judaism. And it also outlived the Roman Empire. And the good news is it's alive and well in this place and as well as around the world as brothers and sisters in Christ gather as the church and seek to do God's will. But the work is far from done. We live in a world where nations still invade their sovereign neighbors, where people in some parts of the world still suffer from famines. It's, it's unimaginable. Whereas in other parts of the world, like here, we have a surplus of calories. We live in a world where rich nations hoard life-saving medicines while poor nations make do with less efficacious treatments. We live in the richest nation, not just in the world now, but in the history of human civilization, and yet each week over 600 people come to this campus to receive their mail because they aren't housed. Or maybe, maybe you saw the New York Times expose last week of how migrant children, all of them under 18, but some as young as 12, who should be treated as refugees and enrolled in school, are instead working dangerous jobs in construction and meat packing and auto parts manufacturing. The, their employees are large multinational corporations, but because they use middlemen managers to hire these young people, they say they're unaware that such practices are taking place. I encourage you to go Google it. There are pictures that say otherwise. But there's the thing. Any one of us who owns a mutual fund or contributes to a retirement plan, uh, we're shareholders in companies that do these practices. So I'd argue maybe we're complicit. What would Isaiah say about that? What does Jesus say? Look, I'm not trying to depress everyone listening to the sermon this morning, but I do want to remind us that being a part of the church is more than the maintenance of divine worship and the exercise of spiritual practice, as important as those are. But it's also about seeking God's will. It's about seeking justice and mercy for all of God's children. 
that's an acceptable fast. May God give us the strength and the courage to work for the righteousness of all of God's children. Amen.